everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Armita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Rockus. In this episode, I speak with Malani Kanan, CEO Office of Tunes, a global B2B cross-border payments infrastructure company. Malani grew up in India and started her career in Singapore, working in research and strategy across a diverse set of sectors. After her MBA from INSEAD, Malani focused more directly on the fintech space, working across the industry and landing at Transfer2, which incubated the business that eventually became Tunes. At Tunes, Malani has covered every aspect of the business, starting as a strategy operations manager, moving up to COO, and now she leads the CEO office. Tunes was originally founded in 2016 under Transfer2, which focused on cross-border airtime top-ups and other value-added services. Transfer2 rebranded as DT1, where Tunes was incubated. Since then, Tunes has grown into one of the largest and most well-known B2B payments companies in Singapore. They now serve customers in more than 130 countries, offices in 20 cities, and have closed their 72 million Series C funding round in July of 2023. You can learn more about Tunes by visiting tunes.com. And now a word from our sponsors. everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with The Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what The Green Room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Malani, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Green Room. Thank you for having me, Amrita. Big fan of the podcast, by the way. Love the diversity of leaders that you feature here. Thank you so much, Melanie. Um, and it's wonderful to have you on the show. I've been a big fan of, of you and of Tunes for a long time now as well. And so I'm really glad that we're finally getting you on the show. Let's start, Melanie, by talking about you and your journey. Let's just start at the beginning. You grew up in India, but very quickly moved to Singapore for college. Can you tell us a little bit about you know growing up in India and then what it was like moving to Singapore for the first time, I think, in the mid-2000s? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would just be giving up my age, wouldn't it? Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in India, like you said. But an interesting thing about growing up in India was, for me was I had two working parents, both in corporate, and they moved quite a bit. So, you know, as a child growing up, I lived across Delhi, Chennai and Bangalore, and I schooled across these three. And I think while that's as a child, that can be a bit annoying because you're constantly moving and having to change friends. I think it was a good setup for sort of what would follow in my career and how sort of comfortable the idea of moving or picking up and and starting again would, would be for me. 
I moved to Singapore to to study. I did my undergrad in in business there at at SMU, uh, and I think that sort of opened up, you know, so that next phase, which was about five years or so in research consulting, um, strategy consulting, like you said, across a diverse uh, set of industries, uh, and then, you know, after my master's, fintech wasn't really a thing back then, right? It wasn't a career choice. And now I'm talking about, you know, 2016, uh, when I came out of INSEAD. Um, and no, especially B2B fintech wasn't something that you'd go in going, hey, that's what I want to do once I come out of my MBA. And so that was a little bit of an interesting, you know, happenstance really how I found at that time it was called the Transfer 2 Group. And it was absolute happenstance actually, you know, came across a role that was very interesting, emerging markets, payments builder. Um, I was really curious because I was always looking for the role that would sort of drive towards a bit more inclusion, have that element of, yes, of course, we're, you know, working in and, and sort of learning the best of, of tools and techniques from a developed world, but we're building for the whole world, not just for any one country. And so I, I, I chanced across this role. I ended up having one of those interviews that becomes more like a long conversation. And before the end of the day, I was actually working there. Right? So, so that was the, the start of Transfer 2. That was back in Jan 2017, I think. And it's now seven years later, FinTech has grown. The group grew as a result of FinTech growing, but also as a result of, I think, having great executives that were leading it, our CEO in particular, Peter, who sort of transformed how that the group looked. And my career just grew with it. So it just became, you know, right place, right time. And, and then a willingness to really just, um, globally explore like, like a curious child almost in the context of, of every possible role that you could take up in a startup scale up. Yeah. Amazing. Malini, it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear your story. And I giggle a little bit hearing that you went to SMU here in Singapore. Cause I actually also went to SMU, but in the US, Southern Methodist University. Anytime you Googled SMU, like Singapore Management University would come up. And I'm never in a million years that I dream that I would be here many years later <laughs> chatting with someone else who also went to SMU. Same but different. And it's also incredible to hear about you joining Tunes at very big, you know, sort of early stages of fintech, certainly B2B fintech um, in Singapore. Can you tell us a little bit about what the landscape looked like then? Um, I guess in 20, 2016, 2017, when you were just coming out of INSEAD, when you were looking out into the world and saying, okay, what do I want to do? What was the state of fintech in Singapore then? And what was the state of tunes when you joined? Like what stage of funding, how many people? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that evolution growing along, you know, you growing um, at tunes while also growing with kind of like the Singapore, Southeast Asia fintech landscape. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, the state of fintech back then was, uh, I think it was, I remember we had the first fintech group that INSEAD alumni had set up. Uh, and I think it was, it, it was, it was actually not people from fintech. It was people from Visa, MasterCard and banks that were interested in fintech. That was really the, I would say the sort of broader perspective around there was excitement. There was a, a massive market opportunity. I think we were on the cusp of something, but it was a lot of enthusiasts at that time. That looks very different today. Of course, as, as you know, Amrita, seven years later, it's, it's, it's an explosion. 
there's a lot of understanding of the sub-verticals within fintech. So, you know, when the minute you, you chat to someone, you go, I work in fintech, the natural next question would be, which part? Right. Back then it was, it was broad enough and, and you kind of really had to explain why was fintech different from finance? Right. So, so very different mindset. I think just in terms of what, what tunes and the group looked like. So an interesting story about tunes, right? So tunes is part of a bigger group called transfer two. And back in 2017, it was really just transfer two. That's the company I joined. That was, it was a hundred people. Um, they had built a very successful first product, um, very interesting cross-border airtime top-ups. And the use case was basically for, for people who were, let's assume migrant workers or just, you know, supporting their, their family back home in, in any sort of way and sending money at the end of the month would be would be expensive, right? So it's something that you'd really save up for. You'd wait to get your entire salary and then you'd kind of pool it together, potentially, you know, go up go up to the Western Union or, you know, pool it together as cash and send it back through someone who was who was traveling back home. Right. So um that was the landscape within which that first product was developed where people wanted to be able to take care of their family in between remittance payments. And being able to top up someone's phone, especially in a world where 98% of phones back then were still on prepaid plans, w- was really important. It, it just allowed for you to be able to be in touch. And that business still exists today as DT1. It's a business that I, that during the course of that, those seven years, I also worked on in many ways and, and became a very big part of. But it sort of took that natural evolution where Beyond being able to pay for phones, it sort of became, how do I do bill payments? How do I do utility payments of different kinds? It can be gas, you know, water, et cetera. And then how do I sort of send value back in kind in the form of vouchers? Right? So it became this massive uh, platform uh, to be able to send value to someone cross-border. Tunes was incubated within this. It was all our, our sort of relationship with mobile operators on the first business that allowed us to see that mobile wallets were picking up. And in about 2015, 2016, Tunes started to become, it was just a product line. It became, what would it take for us to do cross-border money movement? So when I joined in 2017, I think we had the beginnings of a platform. We had a very strong sort of understanding of relationships with mobile operators that were developing mobile wallets. And this was that's here I'm talking about really large parts of Africa where till date mobile money is driven by mobile operators. And there was a base of customers, largely remittance customers, that were interested to see what that next evolution would look like. Right. So all the right ingredients. I joined them to support across both product lines, this cross-border top-up, which was, you know, how do you sort of build more use cases, more diversity, more product lines there? But also cross cross border money movement, which was what should be the first set of markets that we go out and build our network into. And it's, it's really, uh, that, you know, first remittance use case that also I associated back then with the business very clearly, which was financial inclusion, right? Because if you remember at that time and we had all these reports from the World Bank, the cost of sending money to Africa, was, you know, it would be upwards of 10% of the value that you were sending. Um, and that looked, I mean, while 
Asia might have been a little bit better. It wasn't a lot better. It wasn't a lot easier. It wasn't, you know, it was definitely not cost effective, instant, transparent. Uh, it was controlled in many ways by limited set of consumer facing options. And so it was a very interesting problem to solve. And I sort of saw them hand in hand because I think what's been a really important success fact for Fortunes has been the ability to learn from that first business, which was DT1 now. At that time, you asked us about, you know, sort of what was the funding maturity at that point. Largely, the business had been bootstrapped by the original founder for the first few years. And then there was a, there was a couple of investments, uh, but I think they were never formalized. So you could say, you know, we, we didn't even call it a series A. Ingenico had invested in the business. We also had a very wealthy individual who had sort of deep knowledge in payments who had invested in the business, but it wasn't uh, packaged for what would happen later, which was a series of VC and private equity investments. Four months after I joined, our CEO Peter joined, and I think he observed what a lot of us were sort of living, breathing, which was these were fundamentally two different business lines that were very different stages of maturity. You know, DT1 was fundamentally had scaled across uh, 160 countries, had a very clear reason for being and was profitable at its core. And Tunes was was a true startup, right? So packaging them both together was confusing for the market. It was also confusing for employees. And, and I think it just sort of took away from that deep level of focus that you needed to have to run both businesses to their next stage. So within the span of a year, so by mid-2018, very exciting, we actually split the businesses into two and gave them their own identity. So Tunes became what we now know, the cross-border money movement expert uh, within the group. Mm-hmm. And, and DT1 uh, stayed on as the digital value services business, the original mothership that, that had sort of started the, the foundation of the group. That's a pretty amazing story, story, Melanie. And the fact that you were there to see all of it from, from the beginning, pretty much. And it was funny listening to you say, you know, you joined when fintech, fintech wasn't even fintech. I have like, you know, memories of like being sitting in business school in a few classes and professors were like, Oh, fintech is a fad. And, um, you know, it's funny to think about those comments now and also to see how, uh, the company's grown, how the ecosystem's grown. But I also want to talk about how you've grown in that time. Um, you started out off as a strategy and operations manager, and now you're you're the CEO office. So can you tell us about that journey, how that um how you sort of like, you know, bounced around different roles within the organization and um, you know, ultimately, you know, where you are now? Absolutely, Amrita. I think, you know, we so so we were about a hundred people at that time. And I think you know, when you when you have a term like strategy and operations manager, it's basically you, you're doing everything that isn't sales or tech, really, because that's really you're that first hire, that first representation of, of everything else. Right. So at that point, that that first year and a half was setting up the, the blueprint for where the businesses might grow, but also setting up that first, you know, CRM, the first. BI tool, the first everything, the first sort of a common language for how we'll report our business and, and elevate the presentation of it internally. The website that makes sense, that explains to people what we actually do, right? So that was the initial. And I, and I think I love doing it because I, I've always 
you know, wanted to be an entrepreneur one day. And so it just feels like if you can do a job that allows you to do 50,000 micro jobs in one, it's the closest you'll ever get to doing that if it's not your own business, right? And I, I really have to sort of thank the group for that because I, I think that theme is, is recurring in the next seven years as well. After that, what happened once we split the businesses and, you know, I, I had my first brush with being able to sort of do the due diligence and acquire a full business because on one side of the group, we decided that we wanted to buy a, our next asset, sort of, sort of continue to build this virtuous ecosystem of financial services that was going to support emerging markets. And the, the theme we chose was micro lending. Um, and we chose it for, for many reasons, but I, I think most importantly, because it, it had sort of a very strong connect in emerging markets with mobile wallets and mobile operators, because that was the dominant form in which micro lending was being done. And, and since our other businesses were also touching on, on this in such a core network building kind of way, we decided, you know, you know, that's the path, right? And so that strategy, which was initially just, let's say, a much more business strategy or commercial strategy, very quickly became corporate strategy in its, in its nature. Because, um, for the next seven, eight months, doing the due diligence, executing the transaction and being sort of a very core part of that team that was, that was driving that into post-merger integration of this massive asset, which was lending a billion dollars in, in microloans in the African subcontinent over the course of a year. Uh, so very different scale of business was something that became a really key part of, of my identity moving forward. And post-merger integration in that context meant actually spending time in Kenya on the ground where that, that business was headquartered and also dealing with everything. You know, it's a very rosy picture when you buy a company, but then I think as you do that, that PMI, your first post-merger integration and, and mine ended up being extremely complex for, for the reasons that it was really a business that we had bought to fix. It, it sort of gives you your leadership brush in many ways because you're, you're left on the ground kind of dealing with a lot of things that, that you're just, you know, cascading back to, to head office in Singapore, but in, a, in, in very small form. So a lot of those micro decisions, running teams. I think at that point I was running a variety of teams that didn't have a home, right? So everything ranging from analytics, marketing, sales at some point, as well to, as innovation or where new products were sitting, were all reporting into me and making those decisions about which projects live and which die and how that impacts the health of the business uh, was, was sort of that, that next phase for me. At that time, I think, you know, I had had that sort of good fortune of working across all of our large businesses. And in, in some way or form being tied to either very strategic corporate, corporate development roles or being able to do fundraising for them because we, we also sort of went down that path of, um, you know, raising private equity money for some of our businesses as well as VC money for, for tunes. It was became sort of very broadly. Okay. Here's a person who can speak to the group story, right? So in. COVID happened right after, as, as, as we all know. But in 2021, August, our CEO sort of invited me to join him as his chief of staff to look across the group. And, and, and this sort of then became a much more formalized way of, of what I was doing, uh, compared to. And, and so you asked me about the CEO office. The CEO office sort of emerges from there because as a chief of staff, I was working across all of the group's businesses, 
supporting them in sort of whatever stage of growth they were, uh, whatever that key challenge was, whether it was a management challenge or a, or, or a very specific growth challenge. And then we also chose at that time to set up a small investment arm as part of the group where we would execute very simple, uh, you know, sort of angel investments into companies that would support the ecosystem further. So that became something that I own and ran. And then that has sort of culminated into me sort of exiting into tunes, working in this past year as a hybrid chief revenue, chief operating officer, setting up the company for the next stage of leadership and continuing to support the CEO as in, in the CEO office, basically. Wow. Malani, it sounds um it sounds kind of like a dream journey. You know, as as the business grows, you know, you get to grow and flex different muscles. And I'm sure that must take, you know, a lot of really incredible alignment with with the CEO, right? I think you must have incredible support and you must have proven yourself in the organization to like gain that level of trust. And you must have great leadership to, you know, say, hey, Malani, you're awesome. Like here, do all of these, do all of these high impact projects that ultimately lead to incredible growth for the organization. And today, it sounds like the scale of Tunes is massive. And you're working across how many, I think, you can tell me the number of countries, but I think you've got offices in like seven or eight different different um, major cities across the world. Really quickly, before we move on to like more about the Tunes business model, can you just quick tell us like what's a day in the life of Malani Kanan? <laughs> and thanks, Amrita. I mean, you were really, really kind before. I think, you know, with some of these things, it's a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time, right? And then taking those sort of real chances. And I, I think signing up for some of those more complex acquisitions and, and being part of PMI, it's a, a great ground up way to, to learn businesses really quickly. So I would like to recommend that to anyone who gets an opportunity to do that. A day in the life of is, is, is really diverse because it depends which part of the world you're in. But I do spend quite a lot of time coordinating with our teams. I mean, I think that the secret sauce to, to sort of scaling up, but without, you know, sort of overscaling your teams and also sort of making sure that information flow and energy levels are still at the startup level, even though we're now over 700 people overall in the group and, you know, 400 attunes alone is, is just being really good at coordinating every single day, you know, not leaving that for for the next week or the week after. So a lot of it is is time with teams, time in market, time with uh with our customers and partners and making sure that we're being you know sort of really relevant within the ecosystem. Across this journey I've had to do multiple roles, some of them in an acting capacity waiting for the right leader to to join us and some in in sort of a full-time way. But I think the the thread through all of it has been just being really good at having both feet on the ground at all times, um, because then it's really quick to to adjust and course correct. Yeah, absolutely, that's great. I think um, even even like hearing your voice, Melanie, and the way you're kind of talking through, you know, the day to day, it just feels like you have to be very grounded and not reactive to things that are happening, but just really like roll with the punches and you know respond as best as you possibly can. Um, and I get that sense of like calm just hearing you, um, <laughs> hearing you, uh, you talk through the day to day, and I think that means you must have seen your fair share, you know, fires and um, that you had to fight, and so um, must have been an incredible experience. But let us now talk a little bit more about like tunes and the business model because I think it's yeah. 
it's pretty fascinating. I mean, you talked a little bit about the the origin story and how it kind of split off in two directions. And so now the version of Tunes that exists today, the B2B cross-border payments infrastructure, um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what is the range of products? Who do you serve? Um, what does the business really look like today? Tunes is such a different business from what it used to be a couple of years ago. So today it's it's sort of building up its way into a full stack cross-border money movement infrastructure player. And there's a lot of words there. So I just want to unpack a couple of them, right? So Please do. <laughs> our, uh, our focus is, is on how to move money cross-border. So we don't do a lot of domestic payments. I know there's a lot of exciting developments in domestic payments and they do aid us quite a bit. Faster payments is a term that I think quite a lot of us across multiple countries are coming up to speed with or have been living with for a couple of years. But the ability to do that cross-border, that's the obsession that we have at Tunes. And even today, for those of you who might have moved money, maybe, you know, paid a, a company for a supplier invoice or paid a remittance, you will notice that there's a little bit of friction. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, time delays. There's a, some, sometimes you're not really sure what the cost of the thing is until you see it in your wire and cable fees in your bank account. Um, what an understatement, Malini. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of be, uh, you know, absolute. I mean, we, we kind of say we're optimizing it, but fundamentally in, in multiple ways, it's, it's a very inefficient experience. And uh, that we have all, I think, now collectively acknowledged as a world. But a couple of years, years ago was, it was not even the case. There was no sort of real narrative around this space, right? That's what Tunes is obsessed with. And we do that in, in multiple ways. Our first product is a payouts product. This allows um, a company or, and, and we work, I say company because we work B2B. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about who our customers are, are shortly, but allows a company to be able to pay someone in 130 countries. And it allows them to pay them directly to a mobile wallet or a bank account. Uh, whatever is that preferred mode of payment. And that's really important because in a lot of parts of the world, one of the things that was really missing to be part of the global ecosystem, you have to have true inclusion. And true inclusion is not just that you are banked somehow. It is that that method of banking, whether it be your mobile wallet or your bank account that that may be, you know, sort of not part of that complete set of reels that has been developed in your market is actually able to participate in receiving and sending a cross-border transaction, right? And and that's what Tunes builds. And how we do that on the payouts products is we've gone down to these markets and connected technologically and commercially with each of these payment methods. So the real sort of strength of the platform is its direct connectivity into and, and direct sort of ownership of payment rails into markets into mobile wallets, bank accounts, and any of these local schemes that are being developed. And very soon to come would be pay to card and, and, and things like that as well that are, that are now emerging as more, uh, more sort of essential for cross-border payments. The second step in, in this sort of product suite is the ability to collect from. And this is you as a consumer, you know, sitting in Pakistan, in Kenya, in South Africa, wanting to pay a global merchant. You know, how do you make sure that your payment type, the payment type that you like, that you use, that you find comfortable is accepted 
buy a global merchant, right? So that's the other place where Kunes plays, uh, plays, and and we sort of went into that through an acquisition, and then we've sort of built that out a little bit further over the past couple of years. We do that in 80 countries today, where we allow consumers to pay the way they want to to global merchants and and enterprises. And the third is is um, a, a sort of bolt on or, or value added services around compliance as a service, and that's because the biggest part of moving money cross border that the sort of the biggest cost to it is compliance still, and that's where we we you know took a strategic bet where we made an investment on on Tukitaki, and I, and I think you had Abhishek on your podcast not too long ago, maybe did, a year plus. Yeah. Um, and so that's the business that we've taken a majority investment in to be able to fold on to the cross-border money movement rates. That's amazing. So you're really taking, yeah, cross-border money movement. You're, you're looking at the sending side, the receiving side, and then the compliance side, which is um, really the whole the whole suite. You mentioned, you know, some like, talking about some of your customers. I And I flipped through the website and there are some really big names um, yes. that I saw um, in tech, but especially fintech. Um, Grab you know, where I used to work, MoneyGram, Remitly, Revolut, Western Union, M-Pesa, Visa, PayPal. I mean, we all think that these are the biggest, you know, payments companies in the world. We think these are, you know, they do a lot of cross-border payments, but it sounds like they're using the Tunes Rails to actually enable those payments. Can you tell us how that works? Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to bring it to life, maybe I'll tell you like some of the use cases and then that will put in context some of the names you mentioned, right? So the first sort of use case for cross-border money movement that comes to mind is consumer remittances, right? So that's where the likes of, of Remitly uh, fit in into the picture. And it's also how Visa will be using us as part of the Visa Direct Rails, supporting their banks and 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 sort of their broader ecosystem of remittance partners to be able to do remittances directly into mobile wallets, directly into bank accounts for individuals, right? Um, remittances has been one of the, um, you know, really fast growing, but still, still plagued with high cost, high friction of, of, of cross-border money movement. So it's it's a case that we continue to support and we we work even with sort of Revolut's money movement proposition here for remittances and, and, and so on and so forth. I wouldn't say that they use only us. I think that would be doing a disservice to, to everybody in the ecosystem. But I I do, I would say that that yes, we play a very big role in 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 supporting their uh, criticality of these services today. And being able to provide the variety of, of sort of endpoints and, and allowing them to open new markets with ease, right? Which is something that, that we've noticed has worked exceptionally well for, for some of our customers that we, you know, sort of started out with in their startup phase and then ended up scaling with them. Um, the second use case where, where Grab comes in is gig economy worker payments. And here it's, you know, gig economy exploded a couple of years ago. I would say seven years ago, the massive explosion that did happen was a gig economy. And, and we saw a host of business models come along with it. Uh, along with that, a couple of years ago, content creator payouts, sort of, I, I fold them in the same breath, but they're, but they're not really, but uh, you know, also exploded. And here we work with the likes of Grab and with multiple others to be able to support what we classically call a B2C payment, which is an enterprise trying to pay a consumer. And the problem statement here was, how do you pay someone efficiently 
for under $100 across the world, right? And I'm sure you experienced that um, during your time at Grab as well. And, and that's the problem we solve because we make it really easy uh, to allow someone to pull out salary payments of $20, $30, $50 without feeling like they're giving a large part of this away to wire fees because the rails are our own and they're, they're sort of built to, we're the ones moving that money. We're cost effective as we price it. And, and we cut these deals based on sort of really bulk money movement uh, flows, right? So the third one, which is, is, is really probably the fastest growing today and the largest opportunity, but remains complex because it's very industry specific is B2B payment. And here specifically, it's smaller B paying a smaller B, right? So how does a African merchant collect from a Chinese supplier or sort of, sorry, pay a Chinese supplier? Or how does a, a Chinese merchant collect from an Indonesian consumer? That's the sort of uh, ecosystem of payments that we facilitate there. And I mentioned to you about sort of the role of collections in each of this. I think the biggest sort of opportunity for collections is actually within this B2B or C2B, which is, you know, how do you pay a global merchant or a merchant in a, in a specific country where you want the, the product or service from. And, and you could be a small business, but you could also be Amrita yourself or, or myself trying to pay for, for a painting on Etsy, right? Like how do we, how do we make that, that possible? Yeah. Wow. That's everything. And it sounds like you're working with everyone. I do have to ask this question because you are working with some really big players and you're working with some really big players in the cross-border payment space. And it's it's really interesting to hear that they're working with a company like Tunes as opposed to building some of this infrastructure themselves. And I was chatting about this podcast with my my father-in-law who's visiting right now from the US and he's in the payment space and um, knows the market really well. And his question to you is actually, how come nobody else is doing this? What is what is the moat that Tunes has that enables you to scale with these incredible customers of yours instead of competing? That's a great question. I think building infrastructure is very hard. Building infrastructure in 130 countries requires boots on the ground, requires, I think, sort of a lot of work with regulators and also being able to, I think, both technically, in, in many cases, just because we fold all of this into a single API, but what's behind this is, you know, multiple connections, multiple ways of interacting with our network partners, the banks, the mobile wallets, the, the sort of real heroes of the network that are, that are part of the story. It, it's a journey of, of being able to support them as they adopt these technological standards as well in certain countries, right? So, so there's a lot of hidden cost and work that goes behind this and a lot of maintenance that that sort of supports the continuing build of infrastructure. So I would say that for for a consumer facing brand many times you know it might be that that choice is between acquiring the customer and relying on a great infrastructure partner versus building that infrastructure directly yourself. And I wouldn't say that people don't do it at all or they don't do it when when sort of business scales to a certain level. But I think you'd still pick the the couple of markets, the one, two, three, where you might say, you know, I could get to this. But doing this at scale across all the payment options and and doing it with the focus that we'd have is is probably something that not all of them would it, it probably just wouldn't be part of their core strategy and and something that would require a massive investment today. There's also with with the moat, there's also uh, you know to sheer time to market, right? So getting central bank approvals or licenses to do what we do, it's a couple of years 
in each of those markets in, in context. In, in Africa, we had to get central bank letters of, of approval for, for the use case we are powering from, you know, most of the countries. So that's almost 50 countries that, that need to acknowledge that, that you're, you're providing a service. That's again something that's, that's quite difficult and, and, and I would say a, a real capability that we offer. As teams, there are other players in in the B two B infrastructure space as well, but I think what sets Tunes apart is we were global from day one. So yes, do we have somebody that competes with us in Latam or Africa or Asia for a couple of markets? Absolutely, but I think our DNA of being global from day one, uh, working across, uh, you know, bridging the time zones, working across regions, not sort of. Having, I mean, we're Singapore headquartered, but in no way, shape, or form have we sort of only developed in Asia, right? We we, we were very focused on, on on solving the problem where it exists, and I think that's another thing that's very hard to replicate because trying to coordinate with teams across, you know, five continents, six continents now, is extremely challenging. So you know, sometimes in in your journey, you might say you might have that inclination to say, well, let me just not do it. Let me just not do that one late night call or let me just not hire that person there because it's going to be harder for me to run this team. But I think we've always sort of stayed away from that as a business and been really clear that we were global first. And 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 that's the other, uh, I think, secret to success here. That's pretty amazing, Malini. That's pretty amazing, um, Malini. I think being global from day one is something that's really hard for a lot of folks to do. They say, okay, I'm going to win this market first and then I'll you know move on to the next one in a very like linear way. But to sort of be firing on all cylinders and say, okay, we're going to take over the world all at once is I think quite special. And I did read an article recently. I think it was a Forbes article that talked about Tunes basically wanting to disrupt Swift, which for those who may not know is basically our global payments network that we have, uh, most of us have kind of accepted as the only way to move money across the world, at least the way that that's pretty much ubiquitous. What's Tunes plan to, to actually compete with Swift and and basically disrupt the the way that we traditionally think about global payments. I think you know Swift has been a standard of messaging serving really well for large value transactions. So a lot of the friction you and I talked about on this podcast occurs in the smaller value transactions. Right. So these are under 100k. Usually these are a couple of thousands, maybe even smaller if you think about remittance payments and and that's where it becomes extremely challenging and I think Swift is is sort of simplified for what is a broader um, correspondent bank network challenge that is happening today, which is that the sheer sort of scale of it and the way in which it's set up makes it not as cost effective or time efficient to be able to move that money around. So to reframe this, because I, you know, I think Swift also has a lot of initiatives in place trying to look at challenges and is also trying to now work with ecosystem partners to drive at the same challenge. I think to, to reframe this, I think fundamentally we're acknowledging that Swift and the correspondent banking network isn't the most ideal solution in its current form for smaller value transactions. And that's where we play. That's a market we absolutely hope to win, whether it's uh, you know through the sheer build out that we've done so far or through cooperation that may come in the future with a lot of other ecosystem partners, because now we're starting to work with a lot of banks and, and schemes like Visa and MasterCard, where we will have to you know sort of take 
a much more active role in building out what the world looks like in the future and building the ecosystem with, with in a more inclusive way. And I think that's that's really sort of what I'm saying because I I, I think that the simplified narrative is absolutely yes, you know, Swift isn't working in its form today. But I think that the reasons for that are are more complex, and and so you know, us focusing on on that that problem, that sort of core problem of the under hundred thousand dollar money movement, particularly you know even smaller value than that, is the best way for us to really equip the ecosystem with good answers. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like you're trying to solve the SME payments problem, right? It's not the individual, it's not the consumer necessarily, it's not like the big corporates, but it's this squishy in between layer where there is so much friction and you know you can't you can't bulk your payments together like the big guys and you don't have as many options as as kind of the little guys. So um it makes sense that that change is trying to play in this space. And I'd um, I'll rephrase that. I think it's not just the SM SME problem. I mean it's a good analogy, but I think it's not just that. It's because a lot of the enterprise, so the big guys, their market expansion is going to occur to payment types that are not included. So SWIFT and correspondent banking doesn't cover mobile wallets at all. That's a massive way of being banked that is excluded from the financial system today if it wasn't for players like Tunes, right? So it is enterprise as well. It is, um, it, the, the problem scales from consumer to, to, to SMB to enterprise, but it's more about making sure that true inclusion is happening at every you know, sort of scale and, and type and market and more specifically at payment type level. That's where, uh, you know, our sweet spot is. Yeah. That's, that's such a great point, Melanie. I think, um, you know, when we think of payments, we think about the existing paradigm of cross border payments and, you know, bank account to bank account. But yeah, when you bring in things like mobile wallets and the fact that like a huge portion of the world is still unbanked, but they may have a mobile wallet, you sort of expand the scope of impact in a huge way. And, and like, let's spend a few minutes maybe zooming out and talking about like why this is an important problem to solve, right? It's, um, you just, you just shared how massive it is, but like, why do, why should we care? Why should we really be trying to solve this problem? I think it's it's a great question, you know. So so there's lots of different sort of versions of what the size of the problem is. <laughs> um, I think more broadly, it's 150 trillion that moves cross border today. That's wow. a massive number. That's moving over rails that are that are that are legacy in the way they were set up. Um, and not all of it is addressable. But we we just talked about it. I think players like Tunes are not trying to solve every problem. A lot of those payments are happening bank to bank or for treasury flows. And that's not the space we're discussing. But even a carve out of that, that just focuses on some of the use cases I mentioned, which is, you know, let's look at remittances, gig economy payouts, and the ability to really sort of pay a business across any geography or or collect from an individual for a business across any geography. Those problems are Again, I think they're at the scale of almost 50 trillion today and set to grow rapidly, right? So first, it's a massive market. Second, I think the way we're all operating is is extremely global today, right? So it's almost like counterintuitive that payments is such a local phenomenon for us still. Even today, and I, I know Amrita, you travel quite a bit. So even today, probably when, when you get down in Bangladesh or when you get down in China, you have to kind of make that little bit of adjustment where you're going okay, what I'm used to doing in Singapore isn't actually going to work here. So what are my options, right? And you see that cash is slowly starting to be replaced in those options because before we would go 
to the money changer and change a little bit of money as we as we try to to even sort of navigate our own world but it's not necessarily easier to use what you like to use which is maybe your pela wallet or whatever else that you're using in singapore your grab wallet and be able to actually participate in another ecosystem so if you can't do it as an as a consumer that's i would say you know top 1% of of um financially included like how difficult and complex is it for other people to do it right so why should we care because there's a very human face to this problem and it's all of us but more importantly it's businesses and we all represent businesses that are looking to scale and open new markets and unlock new use cases i think it's that acknowledgement that like we live borderless our business the way we think about our business and the growth of it is borderless why shouldn't payments be borderless right so so if you kind of look at it from that perspective and i i i, I know it took a philosophical turn there uh, and everything i'm saying now is is me and it's not tunes um <laughs> but it, but it, from a philosophical perspective uh, it really bothers me that that like we didn't get to it sooner i mean it's i'm glad we're getting to it now but but as an ecosystem we we didn't get to this sooner we didn't kind of really think about why unless you have a card and your card is accepted on a global website how are other people really you know buying from amazon right let alone like all these great you know sort of chinese web shops that are sprouting up with great deals like how are people buying on on all these sites right how are they paying how are small entrepreneurs like you know you and me someday mm-hmm. how will we pay suppliers that that are that we're sourcing from mm-hmm. in multiple markets like and and that's why i feel it's it's a really important problem to solve yeah absolutely absolutely i'm giggling a little bit because i just got back from china where you know i was <laughs> struggling with my alipay wallet and my wechat wallet my wechat pay and it is it's you know if you can get these these amazing things to work when you go to a new country great but there's still so much friction involved to get to that level and i think the more that we can make that transition more seamless obviously the better and I, you know something i also think about is i read a lot of sci-fi big sci-fi nerd and when you read some of these sci-fi books it's like oh this is cool you can pay with you know anything you can pay and everyone's on you know you using the same payment system you can you know pay with fingerprint or you know, an eye scan. I think you can do that in China now too. But I, I do. I also get like impatient. I'm like, why aren't we there yet? And it also makes me think about, you know, crypto companies. Crypto companies claim to be from the future. And uh, there are a lot of crypto companies that are focusing on cross-border payments saying that, you know, we should democratize everything. We should be global from day one. How do you think about crypto companies wanting to, you know, catch up to tunes in this space? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and Amrita, I'm going to share my personal views on this because the problem statement you outlined that crypto payment gateways we're dealing with is exactly this, right? I think I'm also an angel investor and I did invest in a, in a company that was looking to solve exactly this for the African subcontinent because it is so challenging to pay and get paid there and then deal with all the complexities of like devaluing currency and general sort of friction along the way and the volatility that accompanies it just means you're never really sure what you're you're making or not and and so crypto sort of looks looks like a panacea for for all of this right it's like it's a great answer i i think the implementation of it you know is is what has taken a hit in the past few years and i and i would say the first thing that that 
whether we, we were looking at it from a tunes perspective or uh, as an individual who's passionate about, you know, sort of learning about the space, the first thing that that's extremely challenging is the lack of regulatory clarity. Cross-border by nature means that you're building across countries. So if they've got different versions of what is and isn't acceptable in this space, it makes it very difficult to do cross-border. What you're really doing is domestic and patching domestic um, solutions. And that's not the problem that we were meant to solve, right? So, so I think the first would be having more regulatory clarity around whether it's stable coins or cryptos and whether they should be used as as a medium of exchange or not. And 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 the second, I think, which is, you know, sort of where it all sort of leads from is is having better compliance solutions that allow us to really understand who is at both ends of this chain, right? Because that's really where a lot of the, the challenges come from. It's the anonymity of it that was very appealing on all fronts, I think for good and for bad, um, but it also makes it very difficult for it to then to sort of stand along uh, what is a highly regulated industry with a very high burden of know your customer and then say, look, we're going to replace you, right? So, so I think there are solutions that are progressing on both these fronts. There are also sandboxes that I've seen come up in the past year that, that make it very promising to see what the future will be. But but I don't I don't know that that we're there yet. Yeah, I think that the the thing that resonated with me the most is that like we think that crypto is like a panacea, but in fact um, there are many more problems that come with it to solving this like very very large and complex problem. I think we are just about out of time. So thank you so much for joining me today. This has been so much fun. I could sit here and chat with you for hours. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the show. And you know, thank you for the audience for joining us on this episode of The Green Room. Thanks, Emma. That was such a pleasure. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.